I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I've written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Well, good evening, Wednesday Bible Study Group. Uh, we are picking up, as I just read to you, from Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 16. Uh, and, of course, that is Paul's ambition to be a pioneer that we ended with last week. You know, it's been told that when Livingston volunteered as a missionary with the London Missionary Society, they asked him where he would like to go. Anywhere, he said, so long as it is forward. And when he reached Africa, he was haunted by the smoke of a thousand villages he saw in the distance. It was one of Paul's ambitions to carry the good news of God to men that had never heard of it before. He takes a text as we closed last week with Isaiah 52:15 to tell of his aim that God will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for what they were not told they will see, and what they've not heard they will understand. Of course, with the present situation with COVID-19 and with Christians being called to the forefront more and more for what we believe, uh, this is a great opportunity to take the good news of Jesus to the nations and to fulfill even what Paul claimed was his great desire. Well, I want to skip ahead, if we can, uh, today to talk about his present and future plans. Uh, and Paul, of course, begins by telling uh, the, the people in Rome in verse 22 that he'd been hindered from coming to visit them for quite some time. But I want to pick up in verse 23, if you will. But now there's no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, he said, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in the material blessings. So after I've completed this task and have made sure that they've received this contribution, I will go to Spain and I'll visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. We have Paul talking to, to the people there in Rome of his immediate plans and then of what his future plans were. So one of the few times in the Bible we get the imagery that Paul was intending to go uh, to Spain. And there's two reasons I think he wanted to go there. First of all, Spain was at the western end of the known world, really, at the time the western end of Europe, and in one sense it was the limit of the civilized world, and he wanted to take the good news of God as far as he could, and he could take it no further. At this time also, Spain was experiencing a, a blaze of genius. Many of the greatest men in the empire were Spaniards. Lucan, the epic poet, Marshall, the master of the epigram, Quintilian, the great teacher and orator of his day, they were all from Spain. And Seneca, the great Stoic philosopher, uh, he was the guardian and afterwards the prime minister of Nero. He was a Spaniard. 
uh, it may well be that Paul was saying to himself, if I could only touch Spain for Christ with its great minds and all that's happening there, the impact for Christ could be tremendous. Uh, and he expected great things to happen wherever he went. His immediate plan, though, was to go to Jerusalem. Uh, of course, the city was always very dear to his heart. He'd arranged for a collection to be taken up from all of the young churches that he'd started uh, for the poor in the church of Jerusalem. There's no doubt that a collection like that would be necessary because in a city like that, uh, in Jerusalem, much of the available employment must have been connected with the temple and with the Jewish people's needs. All the priests and the temple authorities were Sadducees, the supreme enemies of Jesus. And therefore, any man, any woman, when he became a Christian in Jerusalem, were more likely to lose their job and be uh, in, in dire need. The help of the younger churches could give uh, what was needed. But there were at least three other reasons why I think Paul was so eager to take this gift to Jerusalem. I think for himself, it was a payment of a debt and a duty. When it was agreed upon that Paul should be an apostle to the Gentiles, one of the injunctions that were laid upon him by many of the leaders of the church was that he would remember the poor. Galatians chapter 2, verse 10 says, which very thing I was eager to do. Paul was not a man to forget a debt. And now the debt was about to be paid, at least in part. He'd made a vow. He was ready to keep it. And we could take a great lesson from that. But Paul took a collection from the Gentile churches for the church in Jerusalem. And you could read about that uh, in the second chapter of Galatians and in 1 Corinthians 16.1. But I think there was also another reason. I think there was no better way uh, to demonstrate in the most practical way the unity of the church. All the new uh, churches, these, these new springing up churches, needed to know they were not isolated units, but they were members of a great church that extended throughout the world. The value of giving to others is that it makes us remember that we are um, members not just of a single congregation, but we're members of a church that is worldwide. In fact, one of the things that I've been thinking about lately uh, with all of the coronavirus isolation is uh, not just the people in the children's homes and stuff that we support, but what about our camps for the summer? What about Butler Springs Christian Camp? You know, what about the work that's done there? Are they going to be able to have children uh, and the income that comes from that? You know, they're part of the church just as we are. And so our missions giving becomes even so much more important in times like this. I think the churches also gave because they had a desire to do so. It wasn't something that Paul uh, had to squeeze the blood out of a turnip. The Gentiles, they knew they owed their very life to the Jews. There's no better way to put their faith in action. You know, it's easy to talk about Christian generosity. But here's a chance to turn their words into deeds. And giving money is a visible evidence that the Spirit had visited the Gentiles with salvation and, and that their priority system had been flipped upside down. They were willing to serve God with whoever and with whatever they had. And so Paul's on his way to Jerusalem and he's planning a journey to Spain. Now, Bob Baird asked me not that long ago, did he ever get there? Uh, as far as we know, Paul never got to Spain. I know in Jerusalem he encountered trouble that led to his imprisonment, uh, and eventually it would lead to his death. Uh, there was a brief release in which something could have happened, but it seems that this was one plan of the great pioneer that was completely in the hands of God, and as far as we know, it never worked out. 
I think of that song by Thomas Rhett, if you, if you like country music, uh, when he sings, Ain't it funny how life changes? You wake up, ain't nothing the same, and life changes. You can't stop it. Just hop on the train, and you never know what's going to happen. You make your plans, and you hear God laughing. Life changes, and I wouldn't change it for the world. No, I wouldn't change it for the world. Paul's plans would change many times. But it would always be uh, for the honor of God and with the Holy Spirit leading him. And so there would always be great honor there, even though it was often not what Paul intended. You know, you and I never planned to be in a a period of uh, isolation like we're in now. And yet God can use this for incredible things uh, in our families, in our church, uh, in our missions, and in the world. Well, then Paul wants the people to know, not only is he going to uh, Jerusalem with an eye on Spain in the future, but he wants them to know he's going into it with open eyes. Uh, In Romans chapter 15, look at verse 30. He says there, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, join with me in the struggle now by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. You know, the fact of his love for this church in Rome is just an incredible testimony to the heart of Paul. But then the recognition, even of those that he loved so much back in Jerusalem, and not knowing how they would receive the gift, you would think uh, they would be thrilled at the gift that he'd received from the younger churches. But even still, there would be those that that eyed the Gentiles with suspicion. Um, And and it's still that way in, in many places today. And yet the gift he took was sincere. It was a gift that was given generously. In fact, he would tell uh, the Macedonian churches they gave far above their ability. And God had blessed what they'd given, uh, like the widow with her little two mites in the temple. God always honors the gift when it's given in the right heart and entrusted to the the hands that could take fish and loaves and divide them among the thousands. Uh, That's the same God that we look to today. But Paul wanted the, the believers to know, I need your prayer. Uh, I'm going open-eyed because I know there's danger there. Paul's going to be arrested in Jerusalem. He's going to spend the next four years of his life in prison, two in Caesarea and then two in Rome. And here again, his great character uh, just comes out. When Paul went to Jerusalem, he knew what he was doing. He was well aware of the threats that would precede him there. And just as Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, so also did Paul. The highest courage is to know that something perilous awaits us ahead, and yet we still move on. That's the courage that Jesus showed. It's the courage that Paul showed. And it's the courage that every believer in Christ must show. We don't know what the future holds, but if we face it with the courage that Christ gives by his powerful Holy Spirit, we truly will be fine. In such a situation, Paul asked for the prayers of the Christian church at Rome. It's a great thing to go into this life in any situation knowing uh, whether it's to a courtroom or to a surgery or to classes or to a career, uh, whatever it is, it's a great thing to know that we're going wrapped in the warmth of prayer of those who care about us. However far we are apart, uh, separated from those that we love, we know they can meet around the mercy seat of God for us. And like any missionary, Paul needs the prayers of others. 
Specifically, he requests for prayer of deliverance from unbelievers in Judea and that his service in Jerusalem would be accepted. And Paul leaves them with his blessing and he goes on. It was no doubt all that he had to give, even when we have nothing else to give. We can still bear our friends and our loved ones in prayer to God. In fact, some of the greatest work for God is done by invalids on their prayer beds. It was the blessing of the God of peace that Paul sent to Rome, and it was with the presence of the God of peace that he himself would go to Jerusalem with all the threats. And the man who has the peace of God in his heart can meet all of life's dangers unafraid. Now again, we know from history, Paul eventually does make it to Rome, just not in the way he he planned. He would be arrested in Judea because of the Jews. And it would seem like unanswered prayer until we realize uh, that Paul's arrest likely saved him from the death of, at the hands of the Jews. They were planning it, after all, in Acts 22 through 28. His offering was accepted uh, in Acts 24:17, And he did finally make it to Rome, though not in the joy and the anticipated refreshment at first that he had hoped. He went in chains, uh, bound to a guard that uh, obviously heard the gospel from him. You could imprison Paul's body, but you can't imprison his message And the gospel would go not just beyond Rome, it would make it beyond Spain's shores. And and one of the ways was through the writing of Paul, especially in this beautiful book of Romans. Uh, There there is so much to be gained from the study of the history of Paul's life. Uh, F.F. Bruce has a fantastic uh, story or a fantastic book on the life of Paul that I would recommend to you. Um, But to learn from their history should move us to action. N.T. Wright once wrote powerfully, he said, Just as the principle and the ultimate goal of all historical work on J.S. Bach ought to be a more sensitive and intelligent performance of his music, so the principle and ultimate goal of all historical work on the New Testament, it ought to be a more sensitive and intelligent practice of our mission as Christians and discipleship. I think of Jim Elliott, uh, who understood this missionary heart and who did something about it. Jim Elliott left the U.S. and shared the gospel with those who had never heard it before. And when asked why he didn't stay at home and just preach here in the U.S., he said, you wonder why people choose fields far away from the states when young people at home are drifting because no one wants to take the time to listen to their problems. I'll tell you why I left, he said, because those stateside young people have every opportunity to study, to hear and understand the Word of God in their own language, and these Indians have no opportunity whatsoever. I've had to make a cross out of two logs and lie down on it to show the Indians what it meant to crucify a man. When there's that much ignorance over here and so much knowledge and opportunity over there, I have no question in my mind why God sent me here. Those whimpering stateside young people will wake up on the day of judgment condemned to worse fates than those demon-fearing Indians because having a Bible, they were bored with it, while these that never heard of such a thing as writing were, God, I pray thee, you know, he would say, light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for thee. Consume my life, God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. And if you know anything about Jim Elliott's story, you know his life was short because he lost his life on the mission field. But oh, how brightly it burned. 
You know, Paul didn't write Romans to merely make us feel better. He wrote Romans to spur us into action. He wrote Romans so that we would, by the power of the gospel, break down dividing walls and unite as one people for one purpose, the glory of God. Paul wrote Romans to get to Spain. It could be said, as as N.T. Wright also put it, one of the most important lessons in Romans 15 can be this. God allowed Paul to dream of Spain in order that he might write to the Romans. It was Paul's desire to journey to Spain via Rome that gave the world the most theologically rich book ever written. The book of Romans is proof that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, even when we are on a path that we plan and it seems to have been erased. You can bind a man in chains, but again, you cannot bind his message. Well, we come at last to the last chapter of Romans. Uh, and, and before you skip over the, the long list of names that are there, please recognize this is a glorious uh, chapter full of lessons and, and ideas that we can capture. And I hope you'll spend a little time with this. Uh, I, we're going to do that today. Uh, we'll see how far we get. If we end today in this, I'm going to go ahead and finish the book of Jude next week that we were doing on Sunday evenings. Uh, but for now, we're going to start in, in Romans 16, last chapter, verse 1 and 2. And I know you've heard her name, you've heard what she is, and perhaps you've wrestled with this personally. But uh, it, it, she, she's a challenging person to run across in the scripture. It says in Romans 16:1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church in Centre. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she might need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me, Paul says. You know, when a person's applying for a new job, uh, he usually gets a, a letter of reference from somebody that knows him well and can pay tribute to his character and his ability. Well, in the ancient world, when a person was going to live in a strange town or go to a new church, they would take with them letters of introduction from someone that know people in that town. Uh, It made for a more hospitable reception, for an easier transition, and those letters were pretty common in Paul's day. They were known as sestatikai epistolae, or letters uh, of introduction. We still have a lot of those letters. Uh, A lot of them are written on papyrus. They've been recovered from uh, clay jars all the way to rubbish heaps buried in the desert sands of Egypt. In fact, I ran across one as I was studying this past week that said this, a certain Mysterion, for instance, he's an Egyptian olive planter. He sends his servant on an errand to Sotatius, a, a chief priest, and he gives him this letter of introduction. And it says, Mysterion to his own Stotatius, many greetings. I sent my blastus to you for forked sticks for my olive gardens. See then that you do not detain him, for you know how I need him every hour. To Stotatius, the chief priest at the island. That's it. Uh, just a letter of recommendation to introduce the blastus that's gone on the errand of getting these forked sticks for an olive garden. Uh, you know, and so Paul writes to introduce Phoebe to the church at Rome. Now some of you might disagree with me, and that's okay. But I think no church is automatically friendly, especially not to outsiders that are coming in. In some places, friendliness is harder than others. Uh, Life in in our region, honestly, is so varied. It is so busy. Uh, We don't develop relationships without being very intentional about it, even in the church. 
The good news is that most people that attend church do so for spiritual reasons, but the reason they choose one church over another is almost always about personal relationships. People will visit a church most often because a friend or coworker invites them. And when they choose to stay, it's because they've made some, some connections there. And I like the direction one article uh, I, I recently read suggested every church has to adopt the GIFT plan, G-I-F-T. And it's pretty simple, but I like it. Uh, the G stands for greet. Greet someone you've never met before. In other words, get out of your comfort zone, find somebody whose name you don't know, and learn it. Welcome them if they're new. Uh, discover something about them. Get to know them if they've been around for a while, but, but you just haven't met yet. Or offer to sit with them if they come to church alone. The I of gift stands for introduce. Once you greet someone, introduce them to other people. Uh, make sure they meet others. Connect them with something they, someone they have something in common with. If they're farmers, introduce them to a farmer. Uh, if they're salesmen, introduce them to a salesman. Uh, introduce a first-time guest to me, to the minister. Uh, a young person to the youth leader. Or kids to the, and their parents to uh, Susan in the children's ministry. And so on. The F of gift is follow up. And, and most people will say this is where uh, every church they're a part of has fallen at some point. Follow up on someone you've met recently. Find a person you met a week or two ago and just say hello. You know, call them by name. People love to hear their name. Engage in a conversation. Uh, include them in your group of friends. Invite them out for coffee or uh, even more, invite them out for lunch after church. And the T of gift is thank someone. And you know how big I am on gratitude, but thank somebody who did something you appreciate. Every church has people who volunteer their time and efforts and get very little, if any, appreciation shown to them. Now, that gift plan is a simple plan, right? And everybody should be able to do that. Now, now back to Phoebe. Phoebe came from Centre, which was a port city of Corinth. Now, sometimes she's called a servant, which is the same word in Greek that we see translated as deaconess. But please remember, whether you use the word doulos uh, in Greek for deacon or deaconess, it's, it's not an official position in the church. It simply means a servant. It's not truly an office to be elected to. And please understand, there can have been no time in church history when the work of women was not of infinite value. It must have been especially so in the days of the early church, not just with the women that, that traveled with Jesus and supported his ministry. But you're going to see in this list of, of people's names here several women that were of great value to Paul. But in the early church, in the case of baptism by immersion, visitation of the sick, you know, distribution of food to the poor, think of how big a part women must have played in the life and the work of the church. And Paul urges the, the warmest, kindest atmosphere possible for Phoebe. He asked the church at Rome, welcome her as God's designated people ought to welcome each other. In other words, there ought never be strangers in the family of Christ. We're all sons and daughters of the one true Father. We're all brothers and sisters, each belonging to the other. And I think of the last 30 years I've been a part of ministry and preaching. Genuine friendships, friends, are becoming more rare and thus of a greater perceived value than any other aspect of modern church life. And yet a church is not always 
the welcoming place that we think it is or that it ought to be. I was looking this week at the Barna Research Group and they asked the question, why are so many millennials closing the door on church involvement? Why even among those who grow up in the church have six in 10 dropped out at some point? Why have more than 50% been absent from church for the past six months? And why do three in 10 millennials say church is not at all important, while an additional four in 10 feel ambivalent saying church is either somewhat important or somewhat not important? It goes on to say one in three millennials find the church boring. One in five say that God is missing from the church. And substantial majorities of millennials that don't go to church say they will never go because they see Christians, 87% of them, as judgmental, 85% as hypocritical, and 70%, almost three out of four, see people in the church as insensitive to others. We're to be a welcoming place. But if millennials are seeing us as insensitive and uncaring, what does that really say? Another poll among non-churchgoers showed 52% of respondents viewed present-day Christianity as being aggressive and critical. It is possible for churches to become almost little closed societies that aren't interested in welcoming the stranger. When a stranger comes among us, Paul's advice holds good. Welcome one as God's dedicated people ought to welcome each other. In fact, I love the direction of Hebrews 13 verses 1 and 2. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. Isn't that cool? All right, let's go on in Romans 16. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Now, these two verses uh, should make you feel a little bit more optimistic in this quarantine because it talks about having church at home, okay, in a wider sense, but it's still a house church, right? Uh, Romans 16, verse 3 and through 5. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets where? In their house. There, is, there are few more fascinating couples in the New Testament church to me than Priscilla and Aquila, or Aquila. Priscilla's name is actually Prisca. But Priscilla is the affectionate, diminutive form of her name. It's an endearing name that Paul would, would give to her. Where have we met this couple before? Ah, the first time you meet them is in Acts chapter 18 and verse 2. And we learn in that passage that they previously were residents in Rome. If you remember the anti-Semitic Emperor Claudius, he issued an edict in 52 AD that banished the Jews the Jewish people, they were hated in the ancient world as much as they are in some circles today. And so Claudius evicts them from Rome. And when they're banished from Rome, Priscilla and Aquila, they settle in the city of Corinth, Corinthians. They're tent makers, which happens to be Paul's very own trade. And so he finds a home with them. Can you picture Paul and this couple in the evening sitting around sewing canvas together? as they discuss Jesus and, and their faith in him and the work in the churches. And when Paul leaves Corinth and he goes to Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila, they go with him and they settle there in Acts 18, 18. 
the very first incident related to them happens to be when a brilliant scholar by the name of uh, by the name of Apollos walks into Ephesus. At that time, he doesn't have a full grasp of the Christian faith. He's been baptized with the baptism of John. He doesn't know about the baptism of Jesus. And so Aquila and Pris- Prisca or Priscilla, they, they took him into their house and they befriended him and they taught him in the faith in Acts chapter 18, verse 24 through 26. From the very beginning, that this beautiful couple in the New Testament church, they are people with an open heart and an open door. The next time we hear of them, they're still in Ephesus doing their work. Paul would write his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, and he sends greetings from Priscilla and Aquila and from the church that's meeting at their house. And that's long before the days when there was any such thing as a church building or a worship center. Now, the next time we hear about this couple, they're back in Rome. The Edict of Claudius, uh, which banished them from there, it ceased to be effective. It's run out of, of its time. And no doubt, Prisca and Aquila, like many other Jews, they drifted back to their old homes and communities and their old business. And we discover that they're just the same. The location has changed, but there is still a group of Christian people meeting in their house. I love people like this. Then the last time we meet them is in 2 Timothy 4.19. But once again, they're not in Rome. They're back at Ephesus. And one of the last messages Paul ever sent in his lifetime, it's a greeting to this pair of Christians that have come through so much with him. This this couple lived a, a life that was always on the move. It was an unsettled life for God. But their hearts and their doors were always open in Christ's name. Aquila himself had been born in Pontus and Anatolia. Now, if you look that up online, you're going to find out uh, it's in the modern Black Sea region of Turkey. So he's from far, far east. We find them resident first at Rome, then in Corinth, then in Ephesus, then back to Rome, and finally again to Ephesus. And everywhere they go, their home is the center for Christian fellowship and service. And truly, every home should be a church. Amen? Whether it's, it's your personal worship center Uh, And more than that, for your family as you worship. But it should be a place where you open the doors to neighbors and family and friends as well. Because anywhere you gather in the name of Christ, Christ dwells. Their home just radiates friendship and fellowship and love. Sometimes we like to think of our home as our castle, right? It's a place we can go into and shut the door. uh, Push the button on the garage door opener and it closes behind us. And we can keep the world out. But equally, a home should be a place with an open door, an open hand and heart. They're characteristic of a Christian life. If God's blessed you with a home, he's blessed you with a ministry tool that you are responsible as a steward of. Now, here's where I want to invite you. Put on your sanctified imagination cap with me for another part of of the story of this couple. Today, if you're to visit Rome, there is a church and a cemetery of St. Priscilla, on Aventine Hill. Aventine Hill happens to be one of the seven hills on which ancient Rome is built. That cemetery is the burial place of the ancient Roman Acilian family, and in it is buried Acilius Glabrio. Acilius Glabrio was the consul of Rome in AD 91, which was the highest office that Rome could offer him. And it seems extremely likely 
that Asilius Glabrio died a martyr's death as a Christian. He must have been one of the first of the great Romans to become a Christian and to suffer for his faith. And he's buried in the cemetery of St. Priscilla on Aventine Hill. Now, when people received their freedom in the Roman Empire, they would be enrolled in one of the great families and they would take on that family name as theirs. One of the most common names in the Asilian family happens to be the name Priscilla. And Asilius is sometimes written as, you guessed it, Aquila. We're faced with the possibility. Perhaps Prisca, Priscilla, and Aquila received their freedom from some member of the Asilian family, meaning they were perhaps slaves at one point in their life. Could it be? that these two people who sowed the seeds of Christianity that led to Asilius Glabrio, no less than a Roman consul to become a Christian, were once slaves? Also, did you notice anything out of the ordinary about the mention of their names? Four out of six times in the Bible, Priscilla is named before her husband. Although normally, it goes husband's name first, then the wife, you know, a Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so. There's a possibility that, that this is because Prisca was not a freed woman, not a slave at all, but she was a great lady and a member by birth in the Asilian family. It may be that at some meeting of the Christians, this great Roman lady met Aquila, this humble Jewish tent maker, and the two fall in love. And Christianity destroys the barriers of race and rank and family and wealth and birth. And these two, the Roman aristocrat Priscilla, the Jewish artisan Aquila, were forever joined in Christian love and service. Now, we can't be sure of either one of those possibilities, but we can be sure that there were many in Corinth, many in Ephesus, and many in Rome who owed their souls to Priscilla and Aquila and to the home of theirs, which was also a church. I get excited to think about all that could have come from them. All right. Romans 16, verses 5 through 11. Let's carry on with Paul's commendations here. Greet my dear friend Epinetus. Epinetus was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews that have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, not Urbana, Doug, <laughs> Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Herodian, my fellow Jew, greet those, excuse me, uh, who, who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew, and greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Now realize all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture, including lists of names like this. And behind every one of these names, there is a story which talks of a life and a faith and a walk with Christ. In this chapter alone, there are 24 individual names. And there's a few interesting things to note. Of the 24 names that are listed here, six of them are women. Now that's worth remembering. Because Paul will often be belittled, saying he didn't care for much for women in the church. But if you really want to see Paul's attitude, look at a passage like this and read where his appreciation is. 
he is glad for the work that women are doing in the church, and it shines through his words. Now, out of the 24 names here, 13 of them will occur in inscriptions or in documents that have to do with the emperor's palace in Rome. Now, I think that's very significant. Although there are many common names, it's, it's suggestive of many things. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, Paul speaks of the saints of Caesar's household. It may be that they were, for the most part, slaves, but it's still important that Christianity is penetrating even early into the imperial palace. Andronicus and Junius that are mentioned, they form an interesting pair because it's most likely Junius is a female name. Uh, that would mean that in the early church, men and women were thought of as those that were sent out or apostles. Now, in this sense, in not one of the original 12 that walked with Jesus, but they're part of the original crew that's going out from the church to tell the story of Jesus at large. Paul says that Andronicus and Junius, they were Christians even before he was. That means they've got to go all the way back to the time of Stephen. And they, be, they may have a direct link to the earliest church in Jerusalem. But I'll, I'll bet you, you've never heard the names Andronicus and Junius. Ampliatus or Ampliatus is, is a quite common slave name. And now in the cemetery of Domitilla, which is the earliest of the Christian catacombs, uh, there is a decorated tomb with a single name, Ampliatus, carved on it in bold and in decorative lettering. The very fact that there's just one name, Ampliatus, alone carved in that tomb of the catacombs uh, tells us, you know, Romans were citizens. They always had three names, their, their nomen, their praenomen, and their cognomen. And it would indicate who they were. Uh, this Ampliatus would have been a slave. But the elaborate tomb and the bold lettering were anything but for a slave. And they would indicate he was a man of high rank in the church. And it's plain to see that in the early days of the church, the distinctions of rank were so completely wiped out. It was possible for a man at one time the same to be a slave of this world and yet a great member or leader of the church. Because in Christ, social distinctions did not matter. Uh, even though a slave, he worked for Christ. And even in his entombment, Ampliatus gained great recognition. The household of Aristobulus can also be a phrase with an interesting history. In Rome households, uh, or a household, it didn't just describe a man's family and personal relations. It also included his servants and slaves. And in Rome, for a, for a long time, there had lived a grandson of Herod the Great. Yes, that Herod the Great. His grandson was Aristobulus. He lived always as a private individual. He'd inherited none of Herod's domains, but he was a close friend of the Emperor Claudius. When Aristobulus died, his servants and slaves became the property of the Emperor Claudius. But they would form a section of his home known as the household of Aristobulus. And so this phrase may well describe Jewish servants and slaves that had once belonged to Herod the Great's grandson Aristobulus and now they're the property of Claudius the emperor and it's made more probable by the name method Herodian which is obviously uh, one it, it suits one who has connection with the family of Herod 
Now, the last one you see is Narcissus. Now, Narcissus, uh, and yeah, there's the whole uh, legend of Narcissus and people that are narcissistic and all that. Not the same connection at all. Narcissus is a common name, but the most famous Narcissus was a freedman who'd been a secretary to Claudius, and he ex exercised a notorious influence over him. It was said that he amassed a private fortune of almost four million lira. Okay, His power was in the fact that every correspondence, every letter that was addressed to the emperor passed through the hands of Narcissus. And it never reached Claudius until Narcissus gave approval for it to do so. And he made his fortune from the fact that people would pay him large bribes just to make sure that their letter got to the top of the stack or it actually reached the emperor. When Claudius was murdered and Nero came to the throne, Narcissus survived for a very short time, but in the end, he was compelled to commit suicide. And all of his fortune, all of his household slaves passed into Nero's possession. It may be very well his one-time slaves, which are mentioned here. If Aristobulus really is the Aristobulus who was the grandson of Herod, and if Narcissus was the Narcissus who was Claudius's secretary, this means that many of the slaves at the imperial court were already Christians. Christianity had reached the highest circles in the empire. And so when Nero begins his senseless slaughter of the Christians, their lives and their faith will be put on the line even at their great level of authority as they watch brothers and sisters in Christ die. Would their faith hold true? Of course, one of the things we believe that led to the eventual downfall of the Roman Empire was the, the influence, the peaceable influence of the kingdom of God. Well, I'm looking at my clock now and recognizing we need to move on here uh, to verse 12 through 16. Romans 16 verse 12 says, Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear Persis, another woman who's worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who's been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all of the Lord's people that are with them. Now you know this was definitely before uh, the coronavirus because Paul then says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. No six-foot distance between, right? And all the churches of Christ send their greeting. No doubt behind all these names, again, lies a story. And a few of them can be reconstructed. When Paul wrote his greetings to Tryphena and Tryphosa, who were likely twin sisters, uh, he must have written to them with a smile, uh, tongue-in-cheek, because the way he puts it, it sounds like a complete contradiction in terms. Three times in this list of greetings, Paul will use a Greek word for working hard. He uses it in verse 6 of Romans 16 of Mary. He uses it of, of Tryphena and Tryphosa and of Persis as well in this passage. It is the verb copian, which means to work to the point of exhaustion. That's exactly what he says Tryphena and Tryphosa were in the habit of doing. Now here's the tongue-in-cheek thing. The, their names, Tryphena and Tryphosa, they mean respectively dainty and delicate. <laughs> two women whose names mean dainty and delicate. It's as if you're saying, you know, you two might be called dainty and delicate, 
but your name's so you're two of the strongest workhorses for Jesus I've ever met. And I can think of some ladies at church that are like that, can't you? I can imagine a twinkle in Paul's eye as he dictates that greeting. But one of my favorite stories of the New Testament, oh, how it lies behind the name of Rufus and his mother, who was also a mother to Paul in verse 13. It's obvious that Rufus is a choice spirit and a man well known for his involvement and his faith in the Roman church. It's equally obvious that Paul feels he owes a debt of gratitude to his mother for the kindness he's received from her. So who is this Rufus? Now, if you remember Mark Myers when he did his character portrayal, you'll know. Uh, and no doubt some of you already know how tender it is to come into this first week uh, of Easter's passion. Turn to Mark 15, verse 21. And as you read in Mark 15, 21, you will read of one Simon of Cyrene who was compelled to carry the cross of Jesus on the road to Calvary. You'll find there he is the father of two, Alexander and Rufus. Now, if a man's identified by the names of his sons, it means that although he himself may not be personally known to the community to whom the story is being told, and we believe Mark is being written to a Gentile crowd, probably to those in Rome, they would know who his boys were by name. Almost certainly we find Rufus again, the son of Simon, who carried the cross of Jesus. How terrible a day that had to be for Rufus's father. Simon was a Jew from far off Cyrene in northern Africa. No doubt he had scraped and saved for half a lifetime to just celebrate one Passover in Jerusalem as a God-fearing man. As he entered the city on that day with his heart full on the greatness of the feast, he was going to attend. It was the flat of a Roman spear suddenly that touched him on the shoulder, and he is impressed, drawn into the Roman's service. He finds himself carrying a criminal's cross, and how the resentment must have blazed in his heart. How angry and bitter he must have been at this terrible indignity. All the way from Cyrene for this, to have come so far to sit at the glory of the Passover and to have to have this dreadful, shameful thing happen. No doubt he meant as soon as he reached Calvary, the first thing to do to throw the cross down and walk away with loathing in his heart for the man he carried it for. But something must have happened on the way. On the way to Calvary, the broken figure of Jesus, his eyes, his responses touched his heart. He must have stayed to watch, and, and that figure on the cross, it drew Simon to himself forever. That chance encounter on the road to Calvary changed Simon's life. He came to sit at the Jewish Passover, and he went away a slave of Jesus Christ. He must have gone home and brought his wife and sons into the same experience he himself had. It's interesting in Acts chapter 11 verse 20 when we find men from Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch they were the ones who first preached the gospel to the Greeks. Was one of the men from Cyrene Simon that had carried the cross? Was Rufus with him again? Was it they who took the first tremendous step to take Christianity to the whole world? Can it be that in some sense today we owe the fact that we are Christians to the interrupted vacation of a man from Cyrene who was compelled to carry the cross of Jesus on the road to Calvary? Five verses of names and of greetings 
but what vistas they open that thrill the heart. Now look at this loving last appeal of Paul in verse 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've received. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone's heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And then we have a great song that we sing with our young people sometimes. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Huh. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Romans is a letter that Paul finds very difficult, I think, to bring to an end. He has sent some deep theological understanding, some very practical steps on how to live out your faith. But now he's gotten very personal and he wants them to keep themselves from every evil influence. He's picked out two characteristics of men that are hurtful to the church and to the Christian fellowship. Those who cause dissensions among brothers. Anyone who disturbs the peace of the church has to answer for it. And there are people that take pride in making trouble and who like nothing better than to sow the seed of discord and strife. The man who's brought strife to any band of brothers will answer for it before the king of kings one day, the head of the church. And then there are those that put roadblocks in the way of others. The man who makes it harder for someone to be a Christian also has a lot to answer for. If your conduct is a bad example, if your influence is a temptation to evil, if you teach, if your teaching dilutes or emasculates the Christian faith that you pretend to hold so dear, someday you'll bear your own punishment. And it will not be light because Jesus was stern to anyone who caused one of his little ones to stumble. We're told to be innocent of evil. And the Greek word for innocent, it's the word that literally means a metal that has zero mix of alloy or wine or milk that are not diluted with water. It means something that is absolutely pure from any pollution, any corruption. And the Christian is a man or woman whose utter sincerity is beyond doubt. One thing is to be noted in this passage. It's clear that Paul believed that the Roman church is equipped to deal with any trouble that might arise. He was a wise leader, and because of that, he wanted them to know prevention is better than cure. And in a church or society, a bad situation, if you allow it to develop, because no one has the courage to deal with it, when it's fully developed, sometimes it's just too late to deal with. Too little too late. It's easy enough to spark, uh, to extinguish a spark if you take steps at once, but it's impossible sometimes to extinguish a forest fire, as we saw in Australia or in California recently. Paul says, be wise in dealing with the threatening situations of your time. And the passage again closes with that, that beautiful song we sing in youth group. Uh, Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush and overthrow Satan. And God's people say, even so, Lord Jesus, come. It can't be soon enough. But the peace of God is a peace of action. It is a peace of God's movement that brings victory to overcome this world. And now the last words in our study. Verse 21, 
Timothy, my co-worker, he'll send his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church enjoy, here send you his greetings. Erastus, who's the city's director of public works, and our brother Cordus sends you their greetings. A group of friends sending greetings along with Paul's. Timothy, of course you know, was Paul's right-hand man. He's the young man that Paul saw as his successor and whom later he would say, nobody knew me, knew my mind as well in Philippians 2, 19 and 20. Lucius may very well be the Lucius of Cyrene, one of the prophets and teachers of Antioch who would first send Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys all the way back in Acts 13. Jason may be the Jason that gave Paul hospitality at Thessalonica and suffered because of giving hospitality at the hands of the mob. Sosipater may be the same of Berea who took his church's share of the collection to Jerusalem with Paul. He wanted a personal face to give with the gift in Acts 20 verse 4. Gaius may be the Gaius who was one of the two people that Paul baptized in Corinth. For the first and only time uh, in Scripture, we know the name of the dictation taker who actually penned this letter for Paul because Tertius slips in his own greeting. No great man can ever do his work without the aid that humble helpers provide. Paul has other secretaries, but they're anonymous, and so Tertius is the representative of each of those humble individuals who were penmen for Paul. And one of the most interesting things in all this whole chapter is the way in which again and again Paul characterizes people in a single sentence. Now here there are two great summaries. Gaius is a man of hospitality. Cordus is the brother. It's a great thing, isn't it, to go down in history as the man with the open house or the man with the brotherly heart and someday people will sum up your life and mine with one sentence. What will that sentence be? Hopefully it will be an end of praise as we see in Romans 16, 25. If we go back actually to verse 24, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. The letter to Romans comes to an end with a doxology. It is a gospel that is able to make men stand firm. It's like God speaking to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 2.1, Stand up on your feet, and I will speak with you. The gospel is a power that enables a man to stand against the shocks of this world and the assaults of temptation. Some of you, maybe you've watched during this break, maybe you binge-watched the story of George Washington on the History Channel. You'll know that his very first battle in the Ohio Territory was one of, of embarrassment. Uh, it was actually Washington that attacked uh, an ambassadorial group from France. And as he was on the run, he built a ramshackle place called Fort Necessity. Great named place because it's what he needed. And he concentrated on steadying the fort for a fight because he knew the French would come after him with the Indians. And, and the men deepened and extended their trenches 
complete with a water supply, and they'd already cleared brush to prepare the field for battle. Washington assumed that Fort Necessity was well located in Great Meadows. It was a very marshy ground. The fort was located on the one side that had enough ground firm enough to support an attack. And he assumed the French would meet on the field in the traditional European way of battle. He was just learning how the Indians fought and didn't realize what would happen. It began to rain early on the morning of July the 3rd. The French troops appeared at about 11 that morning and advanced in three columns. Washington ordered his men out of the fort and lined up to fight. The French fired from about 600 yards and the British took their position in trenches now full of rainwater. When they advanced within about 60 yards, the French scattered into the surrounding hillsides and they began an eight-hour bombardment of that tiny little fort and the exposed soldiers. And then from every little rising tree, stump, stone, and bush kept up a constant galling fire upon us, as Washington said, still serving as he was in the British military. One gallant soul declared, General Washington, it is better to die on our feet then live upon our knees. Well, the French broke off their attack at 8 o'clock that night and called for a parley. Washington was immediately suspicious because why would the French want to negotiate? They were so clearly winning. He took, took stock of his resources. All of his horses and livestock had been killed. The powder was wet. Most of the men's guns were jammed. There was no hope of repair. One third of his men were dead and wounded. And the words of, of that soldier it's better to die on our feet than live on our knees, rang in his ears. And he had to make a decision. You know, life can be difficult, and sometimes a man is beaten to his knees by the battering that life gives him. Life can be perilous, and, and sometimes we can slip in, in places of temptation. But friends, the, the gospel is God's power to save. It is a power that keeps us up even when life is at its worst and most threatening. It's a gospel that Paul preached and which was offered by Jesus Christ. That is to say, the gospel takes its source in Christ and is sent out in the rivers and streams of the lives of people like you and me. Without Jesus Christ, there is no gospel at all. But without people sharing Jesus, others will never hear the gospel. Our duty is that when we are found by Christ, we should go and find others for him. Like Andrew, after he was found by Jesus, John says in John 1.40, he found his brother Simon, and he said to him, Simon, we have found the Messiah. It's a Christian privilege and a Christian duty. Our privilege is to accept and take in the good news of Jesus for ourselves, but our Christian duty is to transmit that good news to others. There's a famous story that's told about Jesus after the cross and the resurrection Returning to glory. You know what? I'm going to save that for this Friday for our Good Friday service. And I hope that you'll, you'll be here to share that with me. But you know something? It, this is a gospel that issues an obedient word to a world where God is, is honestly king. It's not founded on submission to any iron law that breaks the man who opposes. It's an obedience found in a living faith. It's a surrender that's the result of of love. And for Paul the Christian's not a man that's surrendered to an irresistible power or force. He's a man that's fallen in love with God, who's the lover of our souls and of men and women, whose love stands forever fully on display. 
for Jesus Christ. And so the long argument of the letter to the Romans, it ends in a, in a song of glorious praise. And friends, I hope in your life and mine, they end the same. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these Wednesday studies. It's one thing to come now to the end of this book of Romans and just be grateful for how you inspired Paul to write such life-giving and practical words through your Holy Spirit's power. But God, I ask that you help us to, to take up our pen, to take up our lives and live them for you. That someday, even if it's one word, it will be a word of your glory added to our names for the gift that you have given and how we have honored you with that gift. Father, I thank you for looking at this world and seeing each one of us, no matter what little we have or how much we have, what past we came from, what path we might be escaping. And you love us with an incredible love that transforms our lives. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for the blessing of your beautiful word. You've divided us. You've cloven our heart, our spirit. And now, Lord, I just ask that as you look into our hearts, you find room to do your mending, restoring, beautiful work to make us not simply patched up people, but to make us people with a new heart, a heart that beats for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all, and I'll see you next week for the Little Book of Jude. Happy Easter and Resurrection Sunday.